Today we start our Decade Series, a new series that we are doing that examines an impactful year across each decade that helped absolutely shape pop culture, alter it in some ways, dramatically. Today, on the heels of Top Gun Maverick being released, Stranger Things Season 4, and the cover to Dark Knight coming up for auction that'll wrap up here in a few weeks, the connective tissue between all these things is 1986. The original Top Gun came out in 1986. Stranger Things 4, the brand new season, takes place in 1986. And Dark Knight, this amazing uh, cover to the original Dark Knight that was that, that was uh, shipped in March of 1986, is already up to a million dollars. So we have got so much going on today. 1986, we examine all of it, the music, the television, the film, and the comic books that change the culture on today's Rob Observations. Hey everybody, this is another episode of Rob Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. Welcome. We have punched all the way into an official third year. We call this the third season, but we are in our third year over 195, 96 episodes. Thank you for taking this journey with me along all of the examinations of pop culture that we do on this show, comic books, sci-fi movies, superheroes, toys, action figures, video games. We try and cover all of it and and uh, and we do it through a lens that, that I come through uh, grabbing you and taking you through kind of this vortex of my own experience in comic books, both as a fan, as a professional, as a publisher, uh, as a writer, artist, creator, uh, just every aspect um, in any of the films, movies, Hollywood stuff I've been involved with, I try and share all of it from you from the perspective that I have gained over all these years because the one thing that I am as obsessed about today as I was when I was seven when I started this journey in 1974 is comic books. Uh, you know, I always joke with my family like, come on, what, what does dad love you know, right after his family, and, and I've, said, I've mentioned this before, they'll groan and go, ah, oh, comic books, but really in my, uh, I mean, I've always, I, it feels like I've been just in the comic book business my entire adult life because, maybe because I have, <laughs> but the thing is that uh, my 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 commitment to comics professionally hasn't been wavered, hasn't wavered uh, uh, in, 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 you know, many years, but it was in, in the, at the dawn of my middle age that I really rediscovered the uh, the the childhood passion for all of the comics that I had growing up. And through that reflection, I got this passion. And, you know, uh, I, I've told the story often here that through the pandemic uh, and, and kind of the loneliness and, and, the, and the just, I, I think back and I go, what were we all doing? Just completely shut in. I know the answer is we were surviving and that's the truth. Uh, we didn't know a whole lot about anything, but this, this, this podcast was born of that um, just solitude, and 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 by sending the signal out into the world, uh, eventually, uh, you know, deciding to, to to do this podcast and reaching all of you, and you guys have been so great, and I have just enjoyed so much sharing the passion because that's what it's what it is. It's the passion uh, that went with saving every available dollar that I had uh, outside of you know 
during this period of my youth, of course, I, I, I dated girls. I saw movies. You know, I, 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 when you go on a date, you got to pay for the dinner. But there was a budget set aside for comic books all the time. And, you know, I, I was fortunate at the heyday of what I believe is my, my youth uh, and, and, and the comics of my youth, the bronze era of comics. You know, I had four stores in Orange County that I frequented, all slightly different than, 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 than the others. Each had aspects of them I really loved. One was much more of a clubhouse uh, that you could just you could just get lost in and had had really old vintage toys, vintage comics along with the new stuff. Uh, it, it was it was really fun, but but the, the ownership and the, and the atmosphere was really old. It was really old. Maybe you can relate to this. It was just very um, staid and and dusty, and uh, it just it just wasn't the the friendliest atmosphere. Even though technically it was the most expansive and most uh, stocked with you know as many errors as possible at that time with comic books and toys and and just just statues and and model kits all this stuff the other stores were more newfangled young they had more of a youthful vibe they had younger ownership and they were uh they didn't they, they couldn't compete in regards to inventory and back stock but they they uh maybe were a little more aggressive in in, in carrying new books and had more overages so that the stuff didn't get sold out but but bottom line the 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 retailers each of these other retailers were super friendly then there was one old so there was two kind of young shops one older shop and then there was another kind of older shop that was like the first one i mentioned except smaller but had a really good selection back stock and and probably took the biggest risk on ordering independence more so than any of the other three stores was this other store that was a little further down the road but all of these were within like you know 20 minutes of me uh, dr driving and, 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 you know, the closest one would be 15. The furthest one was, would be 20 and everything in between. And, and my passion for comics, that budget was always there. I remember, uh, I, I was, you know, I got a traffic ticket ticket and I had to do traffic school, uh, one Saturday and I, I couldn't get to the comic store most weekdays. Uh, to get my comics until Saturdays anyway. And this is back in the 80s. Yes, you now get comic books on Wednesdays. Sometimes now DC is Tuesdays. But growing up, comic books came out on Fridays. You, Your store got their comics on Fridays. Not, not on Monday, not on Tuesday, not on Wednesday, not on Thursday. The books were picked up, delivered on a Thursday, Thursday night. They were racked on a Friday to, to bring in everyone Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The reason that they were changed by the distributors in the middle of the 90s was the distributors went to the belief that like record albums, which were being dropped on Tuesdays, and, and record albums had been dropped on Tuesdays my entire, you know, growing up. A new album by you name it, whatever the act. Uh, and we're going to discuss some records today. They came on Tuesdays. Tuesday night, Tower Records, we had two of them in Orange County. There was a giant one in Los Angeles, and there was two of them in Orange County. One was near Knott's Berry Farm, Buena Park. It was kind of the, the biggest one, uh, uh, as big as the one in, in, in Los Angeles. Also bought tons of uh, uh, concert tickets back when you had to go to stand in line overnight to get tickets to U2 or the Rolling Stones or Madonna or Bruce Springsteen. These are all, you know, big acts for me in my youth, but... The other uh, Tower Records was 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 a smaller, more compact one, but it was great. Uh, again, really well stocked. But Tuesdays, Tuesdays are when the Depeche Mode, the In Excess, the Duran Duran, the Billy Idol, 
uh, that's when that's when albums dropped. Were on Tuesday. Well, in the middle of the '90s, the distributors figured they should get people in on the weekdays, and then give a longer time, bigger lead time to get word of mouth to get you through the weekend. Because otherwise, it was literally just being positioned as just a weekend-only business. And by making a midweek comic book drop for all the publishers, so that Wednesday was the release date, it was meant to drive business all week long. And look, it, it's turned out to be a really good thing. Obviously, comic book stores have, have thrived uh, uh, since then. But I was in between my uh, lunch hour on, on my traffic ticket, uh, you know, ser- serving serving my traffic school to, to clear my ticket off my record and, and satisfy it. And there was in Fullerton, Comic Castle, which was the big expansive one, but old uh, owned by kind of old grumpy guys. I ran there. I remember I got, I got an issue of... Uh, New Teen Titans. It was Aqualad holding Aqua Girl on the cover. It's in the 40s, I think. And 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 and, and like it was the beginning of a three-part kick-ass Aqualad storyline. And I just remember uh, just sitting in my car, buying the comic, driving back, grabbing like a hamburger at the at the at the In and Out, and then just sitting there and reading the comic book, and then finishing it just in time to go finish the afternoon session. So again, comic books, always part of my budget, my youth. Today we are starting a really interesting uh, uh, series, and it's going to be a a, a look at really important years in the comic book business. I've done eras. We've debated era, what's the biggest era, what's the most important era, the, the stuff that I believe, the stuff that you believe. But I do believe truly, truly that years matter, giant Calendar years, January to January, the, the, those those uh, those months that 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 year that can build and change and alter the course of so many businesses. I mean, think about when the iPhone was introduced and and then the iPad, and think about how that changed Apple's dominance. Period. Some people will go back to the inception of the MacBook, and of course, I'm giving Apple all their run here. But I mean, I remember when the DVR launched. And how expensive it was and how few people had it. But then suddenly DVRs just became part of every package. But now we're going all the way back into the early 2000s. But I can distinctly remember in uh, for, for me in Orange County, 2002, 2003, Wi-Fi. You got home Wi-Fi. You bought that one beacon that gave out that you know signal throughout your whole um, house. So, so, so again, different years. They, they changed things. I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, I believe it is the 2005-2006, or maybe it's the 2006-2005 season. But this is the best example that I ever give. Is it? It was, uh, you know, a a, a network uh, can can rebound on the back of just a few shows, and it was actually the 2004-2005 season. I stand corrected. Here we go. See all the research I bring to you guys. Uh, it was fall 2004. That two shows turned around the fortunes of ABC. ABC that had been so dominant, especially in the 70s. Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Dynasty, Three's Company, Soap, Barney Miller. I mean, you guys, it was a, uh, and there's all sorts of ones that, you know, that I'm missing. Three's Company, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley. ABC was the giant network. And I mean, so much, We, we as a kid, I loved their ads, they, they, they had a, a, a campaign called We're Still the One, which took a, a, a song from a band called Orleans, which had a huge hit in the late 70s called You're Still the One. ABC adopted it. They bought it. They bought the music rights, and they put all their stars, Charlie's Angels, the, 
you know, Fonzie, uh, Richie from Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, uh, the cast of Love Boat, you know, the Heart to Heart cast, all, all of the big 70s, and they're all going up in air balloons, and, and, the, and, the, and the music's blaring to, where's still the one in there? The guy would go, ABC, where's still the one? Now, at that, at that point, they were dominating over CBS and over NBC, but then late 70s, when Dallas hit on, on television... Uh, the, the story of J.R. Ewing and his clan and, and, and the giant, you know, rich Ewing family and all their exploits. Uh, Dallas started a huge nighttime soap revolution. Knott's Landing followed. And, and, and before you know it, CBS was ruling the airwaves. Then in the mid-80s, the mid and we're going to take a look at this today, NBC found that Thursday night sweet spot. Cosby Show, Family Ties, St. Elsewhere, later L.A. Law. That would then transcend into, into Thursday night on in the 90s with Seinfeld, Friends, ER, you know, the 8 o'clock hour, the 9 o'clock hour, the 10 o'clock hour. And those 8.30 and 9.30 slots, they were always changing because they wanted so desperately to get something that had the same ratings. But again, you get these periods of dominance. So when ABC, looking to rebound, puts this show about people crashing on an island called Lost, and on Sunday nights they put this new kind of uh, more vampy, you know, nighttime soap called Desperate Housewives. And they skyrocket in the rankings and they stabilize a network back when, honestly, networks, this was, you know, still mattered. This was like the last stand of network television. But 2004, 2005, because then shortly after that same, in that same season, they introduced Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy is still paying off dividends. So that year, they they look back, ABC will tell you that the 2004-2005 season of Lost and Desperate Housewives and Grey's Anatomy made them a relevant juggernaut again. And they thrived, and it defined them for for you know the next several years. I mean, Lost became a cultural phenomenon. Desperate Housewives was must-see TV, and Grey's Anatomy became a huge romantic medical drama that, that gave, you know, three different anchors that drastically, radically altered ABC. So that's a year that they would look at, point on the calendar and go, that changed our fortunes. We are going to look at several years in this upcoming series. And we're going to start today with one that is, and maybe the most important year. And we're going to not just look at the comic books and we're going to go through it. There's going to be part ones and part twos because we can't possibly contain all of this. Because I'm going to look through at it. I'm, I'm going to look at the year through the entire kaleidoscope of pop culture. So it's movies, television, comic books, and music, and all of the things that shaped this um, this 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 particular year. And for comic books, I can really only think of one other year. We're going to discuss it upcoming that will rival this year for relevance and impact, and that is 1986. Today we are all about 1986. What a crazy year! It did not start off with much of a bang. It, it was it was it was kind of a a, a year that to me 1986 in the comic book world, uh, it it was it was a, it was an industry that was was semi out of gas and it needed a little bit of a rejuice. It needed some resuscitation and boy did it get it! It got it big time, and it was a real um, changing of the guard. It it changed the uh, you know the 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 you know it was more than just rearranging the 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 deck chairs on the, on the boat on the Titanic. I mean it was it was a giant shift in power. 
and we're going to examine all of it. And in, and in case you just need a refresher, and why is 1986 so important? I'm going to tell you right now. This last weekend, as I'm as I'm coming to you and I'm talking to you tonight, this last weekend is uh, a big weekend in in the term in in the in the culture in pop culture, and three giant events happened. Two of which have ties to 1986, specifically, boom, right to 1986. One is Top Gun Maverick, the long-awaited, much-anticipated sequel to the gigantic mammoth hit of 1986, of spring, summer, and you'll see fall of 1986, with Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, Anthony Edwards, uh, giant aviator adventure drama that just took America by storm, took the world by storm, made Tom, Tom, uh, Tom Cruise just a household name, a legit bona fide superstar, and he would later go on to be and remains a megastar, maybe our last biggest megastar. We can debate that some other time, but Top Gun Maverick finally made it. After being filmed and promoted in 2019, Tom Cruise came to San Diego Comic-Con. He took the stage. He did Hall H for the very first time with a non-comic book movie. It had kind of the same uh, response that, that when uh, George Miller arrived with his non-comic book movie when he was promoting Mad Max Fury Road in 2014. It was like, wow, what is this great action-adventure, non-superhero, no capes? But that obviously had a serious sci-fi bend, but it was a legacy sequel. Again, a legacy sequel, a sequel to, to a body of work that we hadn't seen in years. Tom Cruise, 2019, shows up, excited. San Diego, I mean, that's where you film Top Gun. He was excited to share, share the release dates, summer 2020. Everyone was, you know, geeked, ready to go. Then the pandemic happened. This movie gets kicked two years down the road and finally makes impact. I, I, I shared with you guys that four weeks ago I saw it at Las Vegas. I didn't want to give anything away, and I'm so glad that everyone is able to share with it and share with the, the, the share in it and share the energy that it provides. It's a great it's a great roller coaster ride. The thing I keep saying to my my family as I keep seeing it again and again and again is it is an A ticket, which is a reference to the best uh, tickets you could get back in the 70s in Disneyland. They didn't give you a pass; you got a a book of tickets. And uh, so I guess I guess Top Gun would be an E ticket because the E tickets were the good rides, and and they only gave you like four of those. So in every book that you bought, there was A rides, B rides, D rides, C, C rides, D rides, and, and then the E rides, the E ticket. Top Gun is an E ticket. It's a roller coaster. You just want to keep going on again and again and again. By the time they instituted the all day pass, that's what me and my friends did. We would go to Disneyland when Space Mountain and Matterhorn were the only two kind of fast rides prior to even Thunder Mountain. That's all we went on. We just kept going on those again and again and again. We didn't want to go on the teacups or the Peter Pan or the, the safari adventure. We wanted to just do the speed, speed, speed. Top Gun is that ride to me. But it, it, it has roots that go all the way back because it's a 1986 movie. And so much of it is important that these 36 years in between, at the time, I'm sure, you know, it was 34 years when they were making it. Uh, it's, it's important that that time passed. But regardless, 1986 is a huge date for Top Gun. It's when it launched. It, it It is when we met Maverick and Goose and Jester and Iceman, all of them. So, what else hit this last weekend that has ties to 1986? The, once again, just with Top Gun, the much-anticipated, longly-awaited uh, season four of Stranger Things. They said it was big. They said it was expensive. They said it was fantastic. They're right. I've, I have seen 
Stranger Things Season 4. I am blown away. I think it is the by far and away the best uh, season since the first season. The thing about Stranger Things is that it came out of nowhere. No one knew about it in, the tw- in 2015. Honestly, if my daughter, 12 at the time, doesn't like just naturally go, that looks interesting to me. We should watch that. We would not have sat down and watched it, and then we 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 it, it debuted, debuted like like on a Thursday night or a Wednesday. We wanted to consume it and have it all committed to our memory and and just be able to not go down to San Diego, which was that weekend, and be spoiled by it. So we wanted to watch it all. So we binged it all. I, I forget it was the first season, even ten episodes, but we we consumed all of it, and I couldn't believe how taken in I was with these characters. And the first season takes place, I believe, in 1980. And in the opening few minutes when the guys are playing Dungeons and Dragons or their tabletop games, as they all go their separate ways at night, uh, Will and, and, and his buddy who are biking home like make a bet and it's and, and I and I believe it is X Men one thirty five that they that they bet like, I'll bet you the X Men one thirty five, which is which has, you know, the Hellfire Club in it and, and the Black Queen and, and the X Men are up against it. Very and I remember, you know, in twenty fifteen, you know, that's Obviously, seven years back for me, I, my ears, woo, perked up big time, big time. You know, wait, what? I mean, they're talking about the X-Men, and it means as much to them and their characters in 1980 as it did to me because that's the age that I was. I was 12, okay? So so, so now, Stranger Things Season 4 opens in March of 1986. So they have advanced to March of 1986. It says in the very first episode, you know, March 1986. So you were getting a series that is referencing Madonna at her peak. You've got Tom Cruise posters on the wall. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which had come out a year before, was is is hugely, hugely influential on this season. I cannot recommend Stranger Things season four um, more strongly. If you enjoyed season one and and eventually, um, you know, found your way away from the show, I'm I'm telling you right now, it is. Uh, it is such a a great return to to form. I mean, uh, you know, uh, again, by, by by the time that 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 nineteen eighty six rolls around, there's already two Nightmare on Elm Streets. I mean, eighty four and eighty five saw our first introductions and extensions and sequels with Freddy Krueger. So so this is March nineteen eighty six. So the kids are actually you know referencing, and then there's some great Easter eggs. I don't want to ruin all of it for you, but. Having Stranger Things season four take place in 1986 is so great because I mean, look at that point you are knocking, you know, on on the uh, the 1990s. But having it in March, you know, the poster of Tom Cruise on the wall is is not is the risky business Tom Cruise. It's the taps Tom Cruise because Top Gun hasn't hit yet. Top Gun hits in May of 1986. And it is a hugely transformative movie, but we're not, I'll, I'll get to that when we get to May in the comics. I'm going to tell you right now that in the comic book world, uh, the, there was nothing special about January 1986, but let me tell you what had just happened in 85. In 1985, as I've said, a couple of really important things. None, nothing is going to be more important, especially to DC Comics fans, but retailers will tell you it was important, period, end of story, is uh, the wrap-up of of Crisis on Infinite Earths, with, which took an entire year to, to tell Crisis on Infinite Earths, the magnum epic that we have mentioned here several times, done by Marv Wolfman and the late George Perez. Twelve issues, two um, two double size issues, issues seven and twelve were double sized, and they uh, or six and twelve, 
and they, they depicted uh, the rise of a cosmic threat called the Anti-Monitor as he was trying to destroy all of the main DC multiverses. The purpose of that miniseries was to simplify DC. I don't believe it actually achieved that goal because then trying to shoehorn everything that was so simply explained in the multiverse, and I've, and I've discussed it on several different uh, podcasts with, with multiverse in the title. Uh, the original multiverse that DC introduced and, and popularized had all these different Earths, Earth, you know, Earth 1, Earth 2, um, it, it, then there was like Earth Z, uh, you know, d- 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 different different denotations to different Earths, but um, it worked. You understood, like I said, I, oh, the World War II era characters are all on the Earth too. I get it. It was simple to me, but somebody upstairs didn't like it. They didn't like that it was on an entire planet entirely that the Justice Society and the World War II era, you know, Wonder Woman, Superman, Green Lantern, Flash were existing. And they wanted to put that in continuity and give that more of a direct tether and make it all connect and put it on one world, one universe, one one established timeline. And that's what Crisis set about to do. And look, tearing down and building things up is fun. The tearing down of it is really fun. For the first several issues, Anti-Monitor is on a tear and he is tearing down the DC universe. And then there's kind of like these huge um, showdown moments, which involve, you know, characters who, who give their lives, big important characters to the DC universe at the time that gave their lives in order for uh, the, the story, you know, the characters to, to have victory and to achieve this ultimate victory. It was hundreds of characters uh, in a giant sprawling epic. And at the end of it, it's it, it George retreated for a brief period. Uh, Marv, as a writer, was already handling several different assignments and writers can always generally do between two and four books, and they do, and he did, but George seemed a little worn out, and that that was kind of the catalyst to change everything that was going on at DC Comics uh, at the time. So you exit 1985, which features all 12 issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths, and now you are in 1986, and let me tell you something. Again, January of 1986, as I'm looking at it, is, is nothing special. And let me tell you, in my eyes, as a fan, as a diehard fan, and, 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 and it's weird how this really upsets people. And I was having a discussion with someone online tonight because they brought it up on online, on, uh, and there was some discourse and some back and forth. But there were, uh, there's a, this is the period of Marvel that is my least favorite period. I believe Marvel enters this period around 1984, and it doesn't come out of it until 87. And it is a period that I call a malaise a kind of a uh, a lost period. They even they, they tried to launch all these new kind of um, initiatives for the fans in regards to they, that's this is when they changed the costume on Spider-Man to the black Spider-Man costume, which now has a ton of nostalgia and is in retrospect is great. But people wanted him out of that black costume more than they wanted it to stay around. Todd McFarlane, as you know, is very vocal when he took the Amazing Spider-Man job. He said, "I'll only take it if we get him out of that black costume." There was a uh, 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 fandom was split. There was a segment of fandom that really liked the black costume, and then there was another that was like, I want the original Spider-Man. And he was appearing in his black costume in Web of Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, and The Amazing Spider-Man. So again, you know, they were really pushing this. But this is the period where Thor got a new costume, got a long beard. Jimmy J and I, season one, talked extensively about New Marvel, and he calls it NU Marvel, and he compared it to New Coke because really not much of it stuck. They went gray on the Hulk, they changed him back to his original uh, gray color. 
uh, Iron Man got a new silver and white armor different than his red and gold. Captain America became the U.S. agent. Um, so you can see all the chief uh, Marvel characters changed during this period, and they promoted it. They gave full house ads. I mean, and that's what people, you know, refer to as new Marvel. And it was like, try out the new directions we have for Thor, for Hulk, for Cap, for Iron Man, for Spider-Man. And, uh, and the thing about the X-Men was, while the X-Men didn't really need any facelift because it was, you know, the number one book, and it had been since Dave Cockrum took over for John Byrne, that, you know, extended period when they relaunched the X-Men from issue 94 all the way to Burn Leaves, leaving in 143, which is wildly believed to be the most exciting time that book ever had. Cockrum then comes back, and now the book that he helped launch, and, and if you've listened to even the most recent episodes, you know my respect for Dave Cockrum is, you know, for a lack of a better word, extreme. I think he is an unsung uh, hero because he is overshadowed by just the brilliance of, 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 of the synergy of the burn Austin stuff and the burn Austin stuff. Again, I have, I have covered so extensively season one. So often, uh, look up any X-Men themed episodes. Um, the rivalries that shaped an era is, is, is really talks about the competition between, uh, uh, George Perez and John Byrne as they were going after all the same assignments at Marvel and how they pushed each other and sales on everything and the favor of fans and, 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 and being, you know, taking over books and making them, you know, quote unquote, hot in the fans' eyes. It matters, and it mattered, and it mattered to those guys, and it mattered to the characters that they worked on. But the X Men eventually, after going Cockrum, Burn, uh, Cockrum, and then this beautiful, amazing Paul Smith, who came from the animation world, who I've also discussed extensively on previous episodes, uh, and and there's there's towards the middle or end of uh, season one of Rob's observations, there's an episode that talks about how Marvel realized that they could start expanding the X Men. That what was better than one X Men book was two X Men books, three X Men books, four X Men books. But here, the X Men are a little tired. Um, Chris Claremont uh, would I mentioned this in an earlier episode, and I saw it. I saw it at conventions when he met an artist like an Art Adams. It got him excited, and he'd immediately say, "I want to do a story for you. I want to do this tailor-made, this special, you know, uh, uh, story for you." And and that became the hundred multi hundred page extravaganza that was the New Mutants annual and the X Men annual of nineteen eighty five. That relationship was born in nineteen eighty three. The minute Chris Claremont saw. Art Adams samples. Art then spent this, you know, extended time on the miniseries Longshot, introducing the print, this brand new character. I only buy that miniseries because of Art Adams. Art, it, it was enough to get me to buy every issue then. And I've talked about, you know, again, an early Rob Observation episode about, about building, you know, extended runs and runs that matter. And this is a, a, a subject that, that I, I tell you that because of Art Adams banking, his work for three years because he couldn't make a monthly de monthly deadline. He could barely do two issues a year. But by, by the time they finally came out, you got one, two, three, four, five, six of Longshot, and six is a double-sized issue. And then that late summer, early fall, to jump right on there, you got a giant size New Mutants, almost 60 pages, plus 50 pages, and then you got an X-Men annual continuing this story where the X-Men all go to Asgard, to Thor's realm, and what you get is six issues of Longshot, one of which is double-sized. So let's count that as a seven, seven, the length of seven issues, that miniseries. Then you get 
two and two because the annuals are the equivalent of two books. And in one year, Arthur Adams gives you, you know, 12 issues worth of work. Seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 11 issues worth of work. Okay. And his career and his appeal was built right on that, on the back of that amazing run, holding it, publishing it all in one calendar year. That's the other thing I was going to say for there was crisis on infinite earths. And then there was the arrival of Art Adams as a huge new voice, new sales. Chris Claremont, he would meet an artist like an Art Adams and he would woo them and he would say, I want to do this. And they'd talk to his editors and say, I want Art to do this annual. They say, well, he has to do long shot first. He goes fine. But you know, Chris was seeking out collaborators other than the guy who was regularly doing the book and the guy regularly doing the book, John Armita Jr. was, um, his reception was not strong among fans because the bar had been held so high. He had about a three-year run. The book, you know, hit all the dates. He was a favorite of Jim Shooter. He was a favorite of editorial because he hit his dates. But there is not a spectacular rendition of any one of the characters. You go, oh, you know, Dave Cockerman's Nightcrawler and and Storm and then and then uh, and maybe then Colossus and then with John Byrne it's it's Wolverine, it's Storm, it's Jean Grey and then with Paul Smith it's Cyclops, it's Storm, it's Wolverine, it's Rogue. You know, each guy had a breakout. The John Romita Jr. run, John is a fine, accomplished professional, but I see it through my teenage eyes and then later as retail because during this time, January 1996, I'm ringing you up at the cash register. I am working at a store that became Tustin Tunes and, um, and and Toys, which still exists today. I buy my comics. If you're in there, I'm, I'm there frequently. I love the owners. Um, I, I, I was there, you know, the guy who owned it in the beginning, Rick, sold it to Matt. And now there's Mike, and I know all of them. And, and it was a, it was an incredible experience. But I'm looking at these comics that are on sale in January 1986, and I was ringing you up. And Avengers was tired. Um, John B. Semmel was doing breakdowns, and John B. Semmel breakdowns are as good as anyone's normal pencils. But his great, brilliant, uh, late Silver Age run on the Avengers was some of the best John B. Semmel you're ever going to get. And now he's doing breakdowns and Tom Palmer. I mean, they're both, you know, 20 years older, older men. And 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 the Avengers, you know, had had a five-year run where it was bouncing between two visionaries, two, two truly visionary comic book talents between John Byrne and George Perez. And then it kind of went off the rails. And uh, the, the, the lineup of artists was scattered for the next, like, now at this point, six years. But by this point in 85... Yosema and Palmer arrive, and the book is not really getting anybody excited. The Avengers appeal as the best book at Marvel was by that time six years in the rearview mirror. Trust me, The Avengers was a book that people clamored to get. But when George left, when John then commits completely to the Fantastic Four post-X-Men and his own book, Alpha Flight, uh, and, and looks away from Avengers, like I said, uh, Avengers became this weird kind of round table of either not ready for primetime guys or older guys. And that's not a recipe that, as you know, excites fans. We want new blood. We want exciting. We want fresh takes. So January of 1986, I'm going through this list. There's just nothing. There's just nothing. Honestly, um, Marvel launched a another X-Men book following New Mutants called X-Factor at the end of 1985. So in January, X-Factor 3 is is trying to, you know, find its legs, find out what the identity of this new book uh, from Marvel X-Factor featuring the original X-Men and trying to, you know, make its mark. But as I, I mean, it is literally just this run-of-the-mill selection of comics, not a standout among them in January 
1986. And then we move and we go to February 1986. And it's more of the same. Because Marvel is really out of steam. The Avengers is kind of out of steam. X-Men is uninspired. X-Men is just, uh, you know, uh, other than these amazing Barry Windsor Smith fill-in issues. And again, why is it? One guy on Twitter said the JR run, he said tonight in arguing about importance, uh, important runs, he tried to say that the JR stuff was more than a placeholder. And one guy goes, I'll tell you why I know it wasn't more of a placeholder because there is not a significant uh, 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 memorable storyline along the lines of what he was giving us with Dark Phoenix or The Brood or even with Paul Smith, Madeline Pryor, uh, you know, the, 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 the two-part, you know, Silver Samurai, Viper, uh, Yukio, Wedding of Wolverine and Yukio. Uh, I mean, each prior to that, I mean, every single talent had given you this giant memorable storyline. I mean, Dark Phoenix is so powerful that they've put it on the cartoon show and they've made two live action versions of it and none of them come close to being as good as the comic book version. Not even close. Not even remotely close. But they've done Days of Future Past, right? They've done adaptations of, of Wolverine stories. The, the Frank Miller, Chris Claremont Wolverine miniseries is the basis of, um, you know, what they called it, The Wolverine. The the, the movie right before Logan. And, uh, you know, the, the thing is that, that that era was so powerful, but the John Romita Jr. stuff with Chris is just not as memorable. But when Barry Windsor Smith would come along, Chris would write an instant classic. He'd write an instant classic, whether it was Life, Death with Storm or this uh, this Uncanny X-Men 2005 that comes out in February, which is a wicked, awesome, wounded wolf pits Wolverine against Lady Deathstrike and the Reavers, and it is an all-out action blast and I don't want to spoil more of it but uh Chris really rose to the occasion because he was working with one of the most important illustrators in the history of comics the the, the man that launched the Conan book in the 70s Barry now Windsor Smith no longer Barry Smith Barry Windsor Smith a true master illustrator along the lines of a Neil Adams um John Byrne is running out the string on his Fantastic Four he's been there now for almost six years and it's getting tired because he has told every possible story that he wanted to tell. He's probably even done sequels to some of the stories that he wanted to do. But the flagship Marvel books, Avengers, X-Men, um, Fantastic Four, there's nothing really consistent. Uh, you know, Green Lantern turns 200 with a bunch of, uh, got a killer, killer, killer Walt Simonson cover. Uh, but, but other than that, uh, it, it's, it's just really kind of just um, a bunch of guys kind of hitting their marks. Decent work. This is a period marked by decent comics, but not one important, um, really momentous storyline or character uh, is standing out or driving anything. And, and I mean, come on here. That there is hundreds of books that are that are released during this time in the comic book world. But February 1986, you know, it, again, for the most part, is just another kind of um, run-of-the-mill month of comics. Now. Now, what's going on in, 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 in the month of March is when it comes to Marvel, the rumors are true, and John Byrne has, in fact, left Marvel Comics. His last issue of The Incredible Hulk has come and gone, and he is in the process. He is in the process of, of leaving Fantastic Four, which is, you know, for fans like, like myself, it's super sad because... 
I was really excited about John Byrne doing the Hulk, but but he has left. He he is is left, and he's leaving Fantastic Four. And the announcement is that he's going to DC Comics. What the heck? The guy that defined comic books for me for eleven years at at, at Marvel when I first saw his stuff on a comic book in nineteen seventy five is now exiting the building. The, the guy who gave me my favorite run of, you know, modern Fantastic Four run, X-Men run, best of all time. Uh, as, we've, as we've talked here, uh, a un- under-celebrated run. I did an entire issue on, on uh, you know, the, the greatest run you've never heard of, and that's him on Captain America, which w- was cut down all too brief. His Alpha Flight was exciting. Uh, his Marvel team-up, his Marvel 2-in-1. I mean, John was prolific. He was... Uh, as as Jim Shooter said, when they sold him on Indiana Jones and then used John Byrne doing Indiana Jones to get Lucasfilm to get interested to bite into, you know, giving them the license, they used John Byrne, who was their number one draw. Jim Shooter said, our number one draw is going to do this. So by March now, we're absent this. John Byrne has left. Al Milgram has taken over the Hulk. Um, the Busema Palmer stuff is still driving Avengers. We've got uh, just again what I am telling you is uh, stuff that was not highly regarded on X Men, um, not, not near nearly the the legendary stuff that came before or or after. It just seemed very journeyman in its in its execution. I speak as the fan that sold them, and the clerk that sold them, and the fan that collected them. But then there was a giant lightning bolt, and I can, and I literally am telling you, a giant lightning bolt. And again, this now unites today and tomorrow. And what I mean by that is past and present are colliding because March of 1986 found the debut of Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns. Yes, this is the book we have discussed ad nauseum, and Frank Miller is maybe the most discussed guy in the podcast uh, because he's just so damn prolific and everything he did is so impactful you know in the last episode that I did I, I I recounted an interview that George Perez gave where he talks about Frank saying I'm doing so well I don't have to take on extra work his work on Daredevil at Marvel made him a superstar at a very young age and then after kind of seemingly doing everything he possibly could on Daredevil he had been wooed constantly and again you know both Marvel has talent at DC right now that they would love to work for them. DC has talent right now at Marvel that they would love to work for them. They make offers, they make calls. Look, I've got friends, I know this. I know in the last, you know, year, I could give you names that have been offered ex- giant sums of money to go from Marvel to DC, from DC to Marvel, in some cases, uh, to do indep- independent work. And, 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 and names that, that you enjoy and are on top books. The reason I know you enjoy them is because they're already on top assignments at both publishers. I'm not going to give you names because that would be unfair to them and that would not be cool. But trust me, you know, there's frustration on both, both sides, on both of the publishers and the independents because no matter what, they can't seem to shake these big names. Everybody wants the other guy's big name to come to them to get the benefit of their talent, and they don't mind whatsoever if it leaves the other guy in the lurks. That's just the nature of the business. Your basketball team, baseball team, football team, hockey team does not care about the other team when they get a great player from them, sign them away either in a sign-in trade or in a free agency situation. My entire family in Orlando in the uh, mid-90s 
were the biggest Orlando Magic front, uh, fans. They established relationships with Shaq, all his businesses, his charities. And then in his first bout of free agency in 1996, he signs with the LA Lakers and they get pissed and they turn on Shaq and they're mad and they've talked crap about him ever since. This is family. This is my family. It's it's what happens in sports. You lose a player to a rival. Now, in this case, they're lucky it was a cross-reference rival or he didn't go to the Knicks. That would have been even worse. You know, Detroit, Chicago. But he went all the way out west to the Lakers and it was still hard for them to follow. And do you think the Lakers shed one tear for the Orlando Magic? They did not. That's the, not the nature of the competitive business, okay? And so, Frank Miller had been wooed constantly. He said by Paul Levitz, by other principals at D.C. And they finally, you know, convinced him and sold him on this pitch that he would go and he would do Dark Knight, transform Batman. I have done so many episodes that I'm not going to give a whole lot more to this other than you know that, 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 that this literally became the template for Batman going forward. I mean, this is 36 years later. And this book is still the biggest Batman book of all time. It, it has made DC Comics umpteen millions of dollars in hardcovers, softcovers, constant reprinting, constant new formats, obviously digital. They've done animated shorts. It has been the basis of several different films. You can see its influence in the Nolan films, in the Snyder films. You can see it in the Robert Pattinson films. Uh, it, it is uncanny how potent, powerful, relevant that what Frank did on Dark Knight happened. But the, the, the significance is it was released in March of 1986. This is the first of the biggest dominoes to fall. John Byrne leaving is, I'm going to say number two, because Frank Miller was already seen as a singular, like, force to be reckoned with, Daredevil taking it from bi-monthly to best-selling book. In that George Perez interview, what I did not read the last time, uh, it's a comics journal interview, George said, you know, uh, we just couldn't outsell Frank Miller's Daredevil. Daredevil was the number one book, and, and oftentimes t Teen Titans would sell number two to that, and we just couldn't get by Frank. Frank's Daredevil was such a monster hit. Again, from a, a, a an identity Daredevil as a loser, as a book that didn't sell, as, as a book that was only good in, in terms of sales to come out every six months to Frank Miller takes it over. He writes it, he draws it, he transforms it, he infuses it with all of his um, interest, his desires, his, his, um, his, 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 you know, the things that he likes, the Yakuza, martial arts, um, just grindhouse elements, and, and the, the book becomes number one. That is the power of talent. So him doing Batman was incredible. I've talked about in regards to Dark Knight because there are also dedicated Dark Knight uh, Frank Miller episodes, and we discuss how the format of this book, the 48-page, what was called Perfect Bound, no staples, glue, and it, and it felt different. They called it, in Europe, they called them albums. Here we, we called it, for a long time, people said, oh, the Dark Knight format, the Dark Knight format. No, it was the perfect bound format. The perfect bound format. This thing sold like hotcakes. And you guys, it wasn't cheap. It was $3, okay? $3 back when your average copy of Captain America was still 75 cents, okay? The Dark Knight was an expensive book. But again, what's going on at Marvel is Walt Simonson is wrapping up his Thor run. He's not even drawing the issues now. Sal Buscema is drawing them. He's writing them. You know, you've got uh, 
round robin uh, creative teams on the New Mutants on X Factor. X Men is is definitely from the fans' perspective during this time in a rut. And the biggest talent at Marvel has announced he's leaving and going to be landing and doing Superman. Everyone knew it. That was um, kind of part of the announcement when when John Byrne left. That was something to anticipate and to look forward to. But Dark Knight happened. Now, why does it is it relevant today? Why is it relevant right now? I will tell you what makes this relevant right now is that in in 18 days, the cover to Dark Knight number one is going up for auction at Heritage Auctions. It is the signature piece that the entire auction is being built around. And there are already chatter. Is it going to go for $2 million, $3 million? There are people who, who think it's going to go for 5 or $6 million. I'm in the high twos. That's where I put it. If it breaks the three, it won't surprise me. If it goes higher than that, it will. No one saw the... Uh, Secret Wars page that debuted the black Spider-Man costume going for three plus million dollars, but it did. So, hey, you know, what are you going to do? That's just a complete shockeroo. The Dark Knight uh, cover is iconic. It's a historic piece. There is no denying it. As a piece of art, as a black silhouette against an airbrushed um, lightning bolt on a blue canvas, it is not something that I would consider um, going after. Uh and, and that's kind of the debate. What are you buying it for? Is it because it's historic? Yes. First and foremost, it's historic. And it's getting a lot of press as a result. Um, it is a cool image, but it is not one that at the end of the day that I could sit and go, man, I, I spent millions on that. And it's a silhouette and a lightning bolt against a blue sky. To me, the the Dark Knight, number two, to me, again, focus on those two words, to me. I'm giving you my opinion, not yours. So I, I welcome that you would feel differently. Dark Knight, number two, with Batman scrunched down tightly in the frame, you know, gripping, fist gripping, you know, le- kind of leaning over in squat position with all the incredible costume details and wrinkles and snarls. To me, that's the best cover of the entire thing. That is now where you go, wow, that that is a piece of art that I could look at endlessly. Doesn't matter really what I think. What matters at the end of the day if someone shows up with 2.8 million, 3.6 million, 4.5, 5, whatever. There's a lot of debate in the in the art circles, whether there are different art message boards, Facebook groups, everyone is anticipating this. This is the signature piece in the Heritage Auction, the cover to Dark Knight number one, which launched in March 1986. It may go on now, 36 years later, to be the single biggest piece of comic book art ever sold. Think about that. So again, 1986 is rocking. It is rocking straight into this existence that we are in right now, this world that we are in right now. So so you can take the Heritage Auction, and and again, in 18 days, it's going to light it up. It's right now, as, a, it, as of this recording, it has a opening bid of 850000 So it is a foregone conclusion that that is going for millions of dollars. Millions. One million, two million. All you need is two guys who really want this thing, who've got money, who want... And, and and they're gonna they're gonna go crazy on this. I, I'm almost certain that there was not even six figures paid for this when it changed hands several years back. Um, there is a gentleman named Joe Lee who bought it, who showed it to everyone his way out of a comic convention. He's displayed it at New York. He has put it up for auction. He has put it up for bid. That is that is what is the understanding. And uh, he is the last person that is known to have had it. And, and so, you know, good luck to him. I, I, I wish him all the best. I hope that it yields for him the absolute most amount of money. I just don't know where it's going to land. But but probably at the end of the day, it will be the single biggest, most expensive single cover sold to date on record. So that is another way that 1986 
is just completely rocking our world. So quickly, uh, pivoting away from what was happening in comics, let's see what is happening in the world of uh, a film and, and, and what's going on in, in, in the world of movies in 1986. Because I'm going to tell you, this is really fun. If you would like to know what the... Let's just go right now and do a casual glance because some of the top movies... Okay, let me, let me do a casual glance. Some of the top movies of the year. So, so the top five movies of 1986 are not even going to debut till May. Um, if we keep going down and we go top 10, nothing comes out, you know, by this time, by, by, by March. That's why it's interesting in the Stranger Things season four when it's March and they're talking about anticipating, you know, graduation. Well, the biggest movies aren't out yet. Now, the biggest movie of 1986 is Top Gun. It made $176 million. I read uh, that with inflation, that's in the $450 million. $176 million uh, bucks that it grossed domestically in 1986. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. In the Stranger Things show, uh, there's a ransom that's happening in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the show. I won't tell you what, which characters it involves, but the number that the person is seeking is 40000 for one uh, drop to in this ransom and I as I told my kids and my wife I mean remember $40,000 um was like $400,000 today my dad was a you know w w he made $50,000 a year that was his big woo you know my mom made 15 and they would say to us you know we're making 65,000 again we we weren't rich we weren't poor we were right in that middle class section but I mean $40,000 a year is people's entire income today i mean i i it's it's people's entire income today but it was most certainly a, a big lump sum to receive uh for a ransom drop in in 1986 but top gun number one movie comes out and i remember it clearly uh top gun came out uh and and and, and stormed the charts and it is really interesting because i can give you weekly weekly Okay, Top Gun opens. Top Gun opens on uh, it, it. It opened May thirtieth. Okay, and and the weekend of May thirtieth to June fifth, and that is not correct. It opened May sixteenth. It opened May sixteenth. It was number one again May thirtieth to June. It was number one when it opened May sixteenth, uh, and and then. The next week, Cobra opened. Now, here's why I know so much about uh, May 23rd, May 29th. I think that was, I think that was Memorial Day weekend, 1986. We, me and my friends, we had a houseboat, about six, seven girls, six, seven guys, uh, uh, two boats, one houseboat, uh, regular boat, bunch of, you know, uh, jet skis and, and and some watercraft, and and we went out to a place, a popular place out here called Lake Havasu, and uh, Lake Havasu had the London Bridge. Um, really hot spot, especially this is the peak of kind of spring break and, and crazy lake culture in, in the 80s in Southern California. And at night, after we had been out on the water, jet skiing, swimming, uh, doing all the crazy water sports, we had all decided that, you know, eat for, for, for two of the evenings that we were out there, we were going to go to the, to the local theater nearby. And Cobra was coming out, Stallone's new you know, movie and Stallone was following up in 1986, the giant mega success of Rocky 
1985, December 1985, November 1985, and Rambo, the, you know, the sequel to First Blood, which came out and kicked off the summer movie season in 1985. Stone was cooking. He was red hot. He had this brand new character, Cobra, a cop, not a soldier, not a boxer. It's this, and Cobra's a fun movie. Really loved it. We eventually saw it that weekend. But that night, the girls all wanted to see Top Gun. And if you know, if you're 17, 18 years old, and you're hanging out with your friends, and you're out at the lake, the lake, and you're goo-goo and gaga over each other, girls and guys both equally, well, the girls kind of set the tone. They got ready, um, and 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 they they had all their cool, you know, 80s hairdos and their their you know, um, the, the 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 banana clips in their hair and all the different uh, you know twistits and 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 all the different little stuff that they put in their hair and they had their super tan and they had all their makeup and they looked stunning and us guys we were just so stunned and and they're like we're seeing top gun we're seeing top gun we're watching the new tom cruise and we all wanted to see cobra but guess what we did we followed the girls and we went and saw this movie that none of us really wanted to see um, none of my friends had, had seen top gun we couldn't recommend it to each other but a bunch of us and i'm talking todd and i'm talking tony and i'm talking kenny and i'm talking you know um mitchell uh, uh uh yes there was a guy named mitchell um, and, and, and we all piled in and saw Tom Gunn and we're blown away. Oh my gosh. Couldn't believe what a great movie about these, this competitive flight school that we'd never heard of, but for Top Gun today on CBS morning, Sunday morning, they had one of the stunt pilots from Top Gun too. He's not, he was nine years old when Top Gun came out. He is standing with his class of aviators when they graduated. And he said, all of us. The thing that united all of us in that class that year when we graduated, which would have been mid-90s, likely, is uh, is that we all saw Top Gun and wanted to do aviation because of Top Gun. And he says, I hope that the work that I've done, this, this stunt pilot speaking today, said inspires more people. But we were all so influenced at 9 and 10 years old that we wanted to then be aviators, be in the Navy. And they did. So again, this movie was giant, was huge. But again, one of the things that I was reading to you guys is is how many weeks uh, that Top Gun was a giant hit. Now check this out. Like I said, it was the number one movie for the entire year. Number two was Crocodile Dundee. Number three was Karate Kid Part Two. Number four was Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School. And number five was James Cameron's Alien. Okay, those are your. That's your top five films for 1986. But here's the deal. Weekly again, Top Gun opens. Okay, Top Gun opens. Uh, in, uh, like I said, May 16th in 1986. The next weekend, Cobra takes the top spot, but then May 30th, Top Gun is number one again. June 6th, Top Gun is number one again. Top Gun doesn't leave the top 10 like most of the summer. And I'm going to tell you, by September, September 5th, what do you think the number one movie is? It's Top Gun. What do you think the number one movie is? September 12th, it's Top Gun. What do you think the number one movie is? September 19th of 1986, it's Top Gun. The only thing that then gets in Top Gun's way is the phenomenon of Crocodile Dundee. All things Australia, I mean, Crocodile Dundee stormed the cinemas. But Top Gun is number one in May. It is uh, number one in June. It stays around and it is number one in September. The entire month of September, Top Gun is a number one movie. September 5th through 11th, 12th through 18th, 19th through 25th. Crocodile Dundee opens 
in the first week of October, and Top Gun is outdone at that point, but then still hangs around again to outgross Crocodile Dundee by the end of the year by uh, $60 million. There was a $60 million gap between them. So even as popular as Crocodile Dundee ended, um, again, we're talking about a year, we're talking about 1986. What was number one on television? Let me tell you something. At the end of, going into fall of 86, when 1985 became 1986, uh, you got that that, that called the 85-86 season. Cosby Show, Family Ties, number two. Cosby Show, number one. Murder, She Wrote. Whew, Angela Lansbury, Lansbury, number three. 60 Minutes, number four. Five, five is Cheers. Dallas is six. Dynasty is seven. Golden Girls, eight. Miami Vice, nine. Uh, Who's the Boss is 10. That's a snapshot, but the entirety of 86 continues with the 86-87 season. Cosby Show is still number one. Family Ties is still number two. Cheers has jumped to number three. Murder, She Wrote has dropped to four. One, one drop. The Golden Girls is five. 60 Minutes has dropped to six. Night Court is seven. Growing Pains is eight. Moonlighting has debuted and stormed the charts at nine. Who's the Boss? Still number 10. Okay, Dallas fell out of the top 10 to 11 again. Taste change, times change, things peak. What about what about albums? What about albums? Okay, I'm gonna tell you right now. You you there's a, there's a there's a reference in Stranger Things when Eleven, as played by Millie Bobby Brown, is being told by Paul Reiser, who is the head of a government organization. He goes, uh, you know, down here you're bigger than Madonna. Well, in 1986, was Madonna hot? Yep. How about she had the number one album of the year, True Blue by Madonna. Sold 25 million copies. She was the number one album of the entire year. Uh, you know, she 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 uh, finished the year at number one. Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. Huge album for them. Number two. Sold 16 million. I mean, look at that. Madonna. You don't think she was... There's, there's almost 10 million separating them. 25 million to 16 million. I mean, it's, it's a hard nine. But man, closer to 10 than you can see with these little tiny numbers. Uh... Paul Simon, Graceland, You Can Call Me Al, huge. Number three, three album of the year, 16 million. Janet Jackson, Control. This, this, this album took everybody by storm, 14 million. And number five, what do you think? It's the soundtrack to Top Gun. 12, 12 million sales. Uh, it was the number five selling album of 1986. Uh, Beastie Boys is number six. Metallica is number seven. Genesis is number eight. Uh, Krista Berg is number nine. And the greatest hits of the police. The police had been broken up a couple of years. They released a greatest hits, the singles. Um, and and uh, called Every Breath You Take. And it uh, it charted number 10, selling 7 million copies. So, so when they reference how big Madonna was, absolutely, 100%. She is worthy of that denotation and all the Bon Jovi haircuts on Stranger Things too. And again, what is hot by the summer, but but you know, is, is Top Gun, that soundtrack, monster. Just a monster soundtrack. And and and, and again, you're you're beginning, you're beginning to see what's going on here. Well, to end end this segment is uh we're gonna jump ahead because April would see us. Uh find us with the 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 next ep issue of dark knight which is now 
all the talk, all the rage. Dark Knight number one just had so many iconic, uh, you know, moments just, just firing at his chest, revealing that I put the target right here on my chest to fire at. The, it, Frank Miller's, you know, explanation, reasoning for the bat signal being exactly where it was supposed to be. Just phenomenal. Phenomenal. People were freaking out and they rallied to Dark Knight number two. Um, again, Walt Simonson winding down on Thor, really just doing covers. John Romita Jr. Um, not doing any depictions of any of the X-Men that really kind of stick or define fandom. Uh, a lot of licensed books. G.I. Joe is doing very well. Alpha Flight is 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 John Byrne has left. So so he's no longer, you know, even associated. He had left to do Hulk. Now he's gone. Al Milgram is doing Hulk. John Byrne is in his last few issues of doing breakdowns on Fantasy Four because that was in, in, in the works. And there is Dark Knight number two, that squat position, incredibly rendered, wrinkly, uh, uh, costume, gritted teeth, gnarly, snarling Batman. I mean, people flipped out on this. George Perez is gone. He's still not back. He's kind of on a sabbatical because Crisis literally just wiped him out. Everyone else is tired, but not Frank Miller. Frank Miller is fresh, and we're going to get, when this resumes, and we reconnect and look further into the rest of 1986, we're going to see as, as John Byrne is coming. Because one of the most amazing and fun things that happens is all the press magazines. June... Uh, of 1986, the first depiction of John Byrne Superman that we can, you know, touch, collect, bring home. It is the cover of Amazing Heroes number 96, which gives an extensive interview where John Byrne talks about the end of his relationship with Marvel after, you know, 11 to 12 years and this new uh, chapter that he's going to bring to Superman. So you've got Batman is already being redefined. Superman is on its way, and lo and behold, what happened on June, in June 1986, June 5th, no less, June 5th, no less, we now have three issues in the can of Dark Knight. Dark Knight 4 is a few weeks away. Dark Knight 1, 2, 3 has come out. Now we get the long-awaited Watchmen number 1 by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. We are at the half-year point of 1986 by the time that Watchmen uh, arrives. It's been heavily promoted. Alan Moore is a huge fan-favorite talent. His work on Swamp Thing put the character just upside down on its ear. His work on um, Miracle Man slash Marvel Man, all his British work had already just driven people crazy with anticipation and excitement and with, uh, with support for this very distinct voice. Who watches... The Watchmen. Who is watching The Watchmen? This extended campaign theme that DC had done heralded the beginning of this new comic epic. Well, you know if you have listened to my dedicated Watchmen podcast, I told you that this was all based on the Charlton Heroes. And and, and funny enough, Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, the Charlton Heroes that they decided not to give to Alan Moore because some of them weren't going to make it out alive and it was a one-shot. It would be as if... DC had take the, taken the Charlton catalog, given it to Alan, and then Alan was going to finish them all off in one fell swoop in this maxi series of his. He had to then pivot when they withdrew and said, you're not going to use the question in Blue Beetle anymore. And he made Owlman, and he made Rorschach, and he made the rest. And, you know, Captain Adam became Dr. Manhattan. 
Watchmen number one arrives June 5th, 1986, and comics will not be the same. And that is where we will join this discussion of the year that is 1986 when we pick up in part two on our next installment of Observations. So 1986 was just a massive year, a giant uh, shifting of the of the guard, uh, a huge, um, mon- monumentous uh, year for, for movies, for music, for comics. We're going to continue this deep dive in our part two that will be our next episode because it's just begun. It is only just beginning 1986. The afterburners have just been fired up at the halfway mark and, and in there is so much more to come, so much more that is going to continually transform uh, all of pop culture, but absolutely transform the world of comic books. You guys, at the end of every episode, I read your reviews. We need them. We love them. We are so grateful that you leave them for us. It helps us stand out on our platform. And uh, you, you guys have been so generous. And and at the end of every episode, I read the reviews that you have left for me, as I'm going to do today with this uh, th- this this review from uh, a, a gentleman named Forever Four Eyes. Forever Four Eyes. It says, Rob kills it. Thank you, sir. It says, grew up with Rob's work and I took it for granted. As of today, that changes. This podcast is a person... This podcast is a perfect testament to the form of comics. We need more veterans of the industry like Mr. Liefeld who still have an infectious love for all things nerd to continue educating future cartoonists. Thank you forever for eyes. Rob kills it. I appreciate it so much. You guys, this this it is it means a great deal that you listen, that you share. I I just I'm continuing to um have great talks with you guys all across pop culture about comics and I get I, I guarantee you and I've t- told this to many of you. Some of these stories that I've shared, I've taken for granted. I've taken for granted. I thought people knew them. And uh, so many people have like, I did not know that. Look, that is why I am pulling up to this mic each and every week to share this with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for leaving uh, these reviews. Keep leaving them. I will keep reading them at the end of every show. You guys, I am all over social media. I am on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld. Blue check mark. Full name. Tells you it's the real deal talking to you. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Blue check that also tells you that I am um, the real deal, you know, talking back and forth to you. You're not going to get a message from my Blue Star account asking you to contribute money, okay? So, Rob Liefeld on Instagram, Robert Liefeld on Twitter. I'm all over Facebook. I have so many different groups I'm a part of. I have a Rob Liefeld Extreme page. It's called Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group. Join up. We share art, thoughts, um, new comics, old comics. I, I have a... Uh, I have a dedicated Facebook page for this podcast, Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld on Facebook. Look for it, like it, leave a comment. I'll find you. I will respond. You guys, thank you so much for listening, for sharing. Take care of yourselves. Uh, read a good book, read a good comic book, watch a great movie, some streaming series that kicks ass. Uh, just just eat some great food. Eat some bad food. Uh, just just, just get, get that comfort, get that peace of mind that you need so badly. We all need it. I am uh, thinking about, I'm rooting for you, I am thinking about you, I am rooting for your mental health, your spiritual health, your your physical health, and your emotional health. You guys take care, and, and I hope that you swing back around and drive through my cul-de-sac one last time to catch me, because I'll be here, and we are going to talk again real soon.